athleticgreens.com slash surf. There is no need for me to belabor this point, especially because you probably already know that it's entirely true, but athleticgreens.com slash surf is your best method to achieve and maintain dietary health and wellness, without which mental health and physical health is not possible. This is also the fastest and the easiest method to achieve all of that stuff. It is a whole food sourced one scoop of powder that you add to eight ounces of water. You drink it on an empty stomach once a day. It has vitamins, nutrients, minerals, probiotics, all of the dietary essentials that you need in your diet that you may be supplementing currently with a dozen other pills, plus juicing, plus raw greens, trying to achieve what this one convenient powder can do for you in one scoop. And even better, you don't have to go to the store to get it. You don't need to go to the store to refill it. They simply send it to your door monthly. You just set it and forget it. Athleticgreens.com slash surf. Using that slash surf keeps us in business and it gets you a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs of AG1. So you can maintain your diet while you're on the road or at work or wherever. So athleticgreens.com slash surf. Thank you and enjoy. By the age of 21, Albi Falzon had been surfing for seven years, and he had his first surf photograph published in Surfing World magazine. Four years later, in 1970, he co-founded Trax magazine. Then, two years later, in 1972, he made his first film, Morning of the Earth. It had a cinematic, albeit mildly psychedelic, quality that encompassed and maybe ignited not only an entire style of surf film genre, but also a lifestyle and ideology that surfers model their life after to this very day. And speaking of to this day or to this week, February 27th marks the 50th anniversary of the release of Morning of the Earth. The entire film, each and every one of the 150,000 frames, has been gloriously remastered in stunning 4K from the original 16mm film. It's been a three-year-long process. The soundtrack has also been remastered, which is also available for purchase in vinyl. There's an accompanying coffee table book that's been released, and there's a screening tour in Australia presented by, of course, Trax Magazine. During this remastering process of the last few years, footage that was originally left on the cutting room floor, footage that Albie himself hadn't seen in five decades, was actually found and then returned to Albie. So that's also been edited and titled Remote. Moat, of course, is an acronym for Morning of the Earth, so Remote. So all of this stuff, the remastered version of the film and all of its accompanying pieces are available on morningoftheearth.com. I am very grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with Albi Falzon about this entire project, about his effortless dedication to the moat ethos, about 50 years of living in a creative flow state, losing his passion for filmmaking, and the unexpected importance of invisibility. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with the one and only Albi Falzon.
Albert, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Dang, I got you too. Yeah, right. Like, the difference is I'm at 6 a.m. in the morning and what time? Two o'clock in the afternoon there. <laughs> is that red wine? <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning? <laughs> it looks like red wine from here. <laughs> it's really hardcore black coffee. <laughs> got it. I don't know what your secret to success is. Maybe it's red wine at 6 a.m. <laughs> I tried that at one time. Didn't, it didn't actually get me down to the ocean. <laughs> oh, okay. Good to know. I will not implement it then. Um, <laughs> no. So I'm going to start with a quote, and I'll just ask you to respond to the quote. This yep. is a quote that you sent me in our first email exchange. You were quoting somebody else, but it said, quote, it is better to be invisible but he didn't realize that at the time, end quote. Can you tell me about that quote? Uh, it's from an author, um, a Nigerian author, uh, Ben Okri. Uh, and I came across that book, Astonishing the Gods. I'm not sure exactly if it was introduced to me if I just stumbled across it. But I read, as I do with most books, the first line of the book to give me an idea of where I'm going with it, if I want to go with that book, or go on the journey. And that was the first line in the book, Astonishing Gods. And I thought, yeah, I'm into this. And it was one of the, my favourite books, and I've got the entire collection of Ben Ockery's books now. He won the Booker a prize many years ago for literature, but it wasn't with this book. I think it was Famishing the gods or something. I'm not too sure on the title of the book, okay. but the book applies, but it was from my favorite all time book, Astonishing the Gods. And what did, what about that quote resonated with you? Well, I guess there's, there's two sides of us in a way. There's like the side that we see, and then there's the invisible side that we don't see, the subtleness of our body, the subjective aspect the intangible. And I think that's what appealed to me. I think it's, it's where does the idea originate from, mm -hmm. the causation of things. And I thought that that was a really interesting opening to perhaps take me into the causation of life, which it was. It was, a, it was, it was between the two worlds, the books about the spirit world and the world of reality as we experience it here and now. And that's always fascinated me. You know, it's like, so I suppose it's like riding a wave. You know, the wave comes from the ocean and it's a wonderful experience to have. And only lasts momentarily, but it goes back into the ocean and comes up somewhere else. And I see life, that's a great metaphor for life. And I see life is like that in many respects. So the invisible aspect of all those um, experiences are much more appealing for me. And I try to capture that in most of my work. And I think to a certain extent, Morning of Earth captured that, even though I wasn't conscious of it at the time. Yeah, it's, it is a very poignant line. And I think you're right uh, that that one sentence at the opening of the book actually really does somehow represent what the rest of the book is about. And what I found it, to be was, um, or why I liked the book. By the way, I had never read the book before. I had never heard of the book before. I read it when you recommended it to me. And as you know, we've got a three month old in the house. It's actually the very first book that I've read him. So oh, I read, 
Yeah, I thought it, I, I just thought it would be appropriate for some reason when I, I ordered it because you told me to, I kind of read through the first page and I thought at night, whenever I'm putting him to sleep, giving him a bottle, um, I'll read something to him, but it doesn't need to be a child's book, of course. And I'll get bored reading a child's book and he's only three months old, so he doesn't know the difference. So I should probably just read him something meaningful. And, um, and it's kind of, so I can say now, this is the first book that I've actually read to him and I'm glad in hindsight, but what I liked about the book was, um, there's these, uh, it's all metaphor. Like almost every sentence is a metaphor. Absolutely. It's, and it's so brilliantly conceived. And I think Ben even said either in the book or, um, I was reading about, uh, interview that he did. He said that he waited a really long time to write. He always wanted to write a book like this. And I was wondering what kind of book is like this. And then as I read it, I realized, oh, this is what authors aspire to do or any work that resonates with its audience. It's because there's these metaphors through portions of the book that resonate. This one is sentence after sentence of metaphor or parable that has kind of deeper meaning than it just has on the surface. Yeah, I think it's like, I think it's about uh, the spiritual aspect, you know, for want of a, a clearer word, uh, you know, in your life. And uh, I think it's an incredible choice that you made to read that to your child, who in its pure form, obviously is not going to relate to it on an intellectual level, but energetically. Yeah. You're going to, you, you will read that book to your child energetically. That child will pick up that. And I think that that's pretty much how our life is. Like there's, we cast a shadow. If we look down after we've come in from the surf, we look down, there's a shadow on the ground and it's our shadow. But in, in some respect, we are a shadow to our higher selves. Mm. And I think that what Ben Ockery is, 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 is used in his metaphorical writings is that he, he's focused on the, the deeper spiritual aspects of humankind. And that was really appealing. I, I would read one page of that book, which was a chapter, and I wouldn't read any further because it was so engrossing for me that I would just sit there in that silent world absorbing what he wrote. It, 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 it resonated so perfectly with my, myself, my inner self. And that's why I think it was, it became, you know, a landmark book for me in a way. And I've passed it on to many people. I mean, I got passed it on to David, the Rustovich, at one point. And I wasn't sure if he was into reading much or what, but I just said, look, here's a book that I think you should read. It's a really beautiful book. And he said, oh, I've just been waiting for, for something to read. And he read that book and it blew him away. And I think that anyone that's um, halfway sensitive to their spiritual life, and I think many surfers are because they have a, this deeper connection with the ocean, resonate with what he's writing. And David did, and it was one of the, you know, it was a, a, a real um, key point for him in his life as well. And it has been for me, I've passed it on to a few people and Cyril, and I'll just, you know, re read the book and get something new from it each time. It's a wonderful piece of work, wonderful piece of literature. So, you know, what can you say? I mean, 
I'm astounded you, you actually read the two to your uh, three or four month old baby. I think that's really great. <laughs> Thanks. I, I did it for the exact reason that you said. I think that there is kind of an energetic um, yeah. something that translates. But um, the exact quote, just on its surface, uh, it is better to be invisible, but he didn't realize it at the time. Just reading it on its surface, I interpreted that to mean, you know, you only kind of want to engage in interviews that, um, I don't know, are meaningful. It's, it's almost a waste to do too many interviews and they lose their impact or if they're with the wrong, in the wrong medium or whatever, they have no impact and it's just kind of dilutes everything. Um, is that the meaning and why you sent it? And are, are there times where you wish that you had kind of laid low and were more invisible, so to speak? Uh, no, I think you, as you probably get older um, or move down the path in your knowledge through life, you start to, I think you look more within for answers, you know, rather than look outside for everything. And I think that that line resonated perfectly with me at the time. I mean, I always was leaning towards intuition in my life and decisions that I made, but I never really understood what it was. You know, when I was young, 15 years old, I intuitively felt that it was important for me to be involved in making films because of something that I love. And Knowing of the Earth, I think, came from that, and so did other films that I've made. And as I've um, um, moved further and further into life and reading and studying and experiences, it's just that I look more for towards the causation of things. And I think intuition is that next stage which gives us all our bright ideas. I mean, I think any great pieces of literature or art or filmmaking or whatever come from that space. And I think Ben Ockrey in his book, Astonishing Gods, totally came from that space. It's very rare that you get a book from cover to cover where it engrosses you on that level. I mean, you might get sentences or paragraphs or moments of experience in certain books, but that book covered it from the first sentence and took you on that journey all the way through. And for me, that was transcendental almost. Yeah. You know, like I just loved it so much because I, that's where I, you know, that's my greatest interest really is to explore that area for, 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 from a creative point of view and for creative developments in anything I do in my life, which has been predominantly filmmaking. It seems a lot of people produce their great work kind of from that creative flow state in their 20s. And maybe you just get um, bogged down by responsibility in your 30s and obligation and success from your work in your 20s, maybe. Have you had a hard time maintaining, staying in that creative flow state throughout the decades? No, not at all. I think I, I, I was fortunate in a way that I was able to carry that through even though I wasn't actually aware of what that state was when I was young. But I think surfing kept me on that, on that page in a way. Um, it kept me in that flow of life in and out of the water. And it complemented all my film work um, as a result of that. So it was kind of like um, when I was 14 or 15, I was aware that um, of intuition without realising it, 
and as I move down into the little older and pass through various stages um, and continue to surf, it kind of pulled me back into line constantly. Uh, it's sort of, it's almost like um, a wiping of the slate <laughs> in a way when you step into the ocean. So it clears that um, the ment any mental um, um, clogs that you may have as a result of your day-to-day -day activities in the world. Uh, so I was able then to stay in an unconscious way connected to that intuit intuitive aspect of life. And I carried that through all the way without recognising it. And as I developed further into um, various types of meditation and enlisted uh, and engaged with um, a spiritual school um, and did 25 years of um, study, it actually it kind of put me more into the practical and mental state of what intuitive um, uh, reasoning was. And then I start, and I, then I understood really that I started thinking about it and realized that if I can live in that silent space, then ideas and things will come to me without me being conscious of it. It'll just flow through without any blockages whatsoever. And I think surfing contributed to that because it just cleared the pathway along with meditation. I think you know, surfing is a great form of yoga because it keeps you connected to that, you know, in, in, in a subtle way without people realising it. But once you actually get into, you know, deep meditation like yoga of synthesis, for example, which is like embracing all knowledge and all wisdom and all aspects of life, once you actually tap into that, it taps into you. And you don't carry it, it just taps you in. And I think creatively it's a wonderful place to be and I think all great art has come from that space. You know, they just, you know, when a, when a painter, for example, gets a canvas, like some painters will stand in front of the canvas and have no idea what they're going to paint. But then there's a flash, you know, and before you know it, there's a masterpiece there. And I think that's the same with every aspect of creativity. And for me, um, film is the modern piece, modern technological canvas that we paint upon. You know, had I been born 200 years ago, I probably would have used uh, art as a form of expression. But it's still the same. It still originates from a, a perfect place. And I think all great ideas, regardless of what they are, come from that space, that intuitive aspect of life. They tap into it. Like Einstein did it with E equals MC square. And when he did that, he walked, you know, they said to him, what are you going to do now? He said, oh, I'm just going to sit on the park bench and look at the light coming through the trees. And I thought, how perfect is that? You know, someone as brilliant as that can just sit there and look at the light coming through the trees and allow that space to enter his being. And that's pretty much where I am at. And that's what I discovered early in life without realising it. And that's how I've lived and painted my pictures through that aspect of life and through surfing. What does your meditation practice look like and how has it changed over the years? Well, I think when you, when you actually get into a scientific aspect of meditation, you get on a program like any study course. But bit by bit and step by step, step it, it takes you deeper into your being, into your mental, into your mental body clears the passageways, 
opens you to the intuitive aspect of life. In the East, it's called the buddhic plane. And I think that you, when you tap into that, it taps into you. And then once you actually, through meditation, realise that, then meditation just falls off the board. You know, it's no longer there. It's like it's almost like surfing's the perfect metaphor and the perfect realization of that. Because once you actually step onto a, into the ocean and get a, and ride a wave, it's like the perfect form of yoga or, and meditation in a way. Because there's a clarity there, and I think that clarity is is really important for us. You know, for any intuitive, for any creative person. You know, we're, we're, we're cluttered today in today's world with so much information, so much activity. It's going on that the mental aspect, apart from the emotional and physical aspect, is just clouded entirely with all this. You have to be very discriminatory in what you choose to think about. Well, what you do when you meditate, it wipes that slate clean. It aligns all those bodies, your physical, um, astral, mental body. It puts it in alignment. So when you do get into a state where you consciously want to tap into that higher field, meditation then through alignment allows that to happen. And that's where the great ideas come from. So is your practice uh, quiet time, sitting still? Is there a mantra? What does the practice itself look like? Well, I think it, the, the, the practice is, is stages that you go through where you do specific things. Mentally and physically to align yourself. But you get to a point after, for me, it was like several years. I mean, it was always there when I was young without realizing it. But then as I, as I moved down the path and started expanding my knowledge through reading and meditation, and I let that go, it just happens. There's a, like a tipping point or a turning point. And you don't realise, you can't specifically say, oh, there's, it happened at this point. It just unfolds. It overlays in a real beautiful way where you move into that field. And once you're in that field, it's constantly there. You don't have to, you know, sit down quietly and close your eyes and think about anything. It's just, it's constantly there. And surfing reaffirms that for me because it's, it, if you do happen, I mean, we live, we're practical. We live in a, in a realistic world where we've got to take care of, you know, the family and our, our careers and, our, you know, expenses, accounts and everything else. But really, you know, when you step into the ocean or into a form of meditation, it clears that. And for me, through 20 years of meditating, I got to a point where that just disappeared. The priorities changed. And then once I got to that point, I didn't have to actually continue. You can continue on. It's infinite. It never stops. Uh, but you just get to a point where that self-realisation takes over. Yeah. And through that self-realisation, then you become who you really are and you fulfil the purpose of your being. Most people don't realise they have a purpose. And for me, I was able to realise that at an early stage and then redevelop it and open it up and explore it through meditation over a 20 year period. So now it's the clarity is there. I don't, the silence, the inner silence is always there. I'm never without it. I'm within it. Um, the, the way that you speak and, but also the way that your work speaks, the work uh, certainly morning of the earth is bigger 
than a single person. It kind of represents an ideology, a lifestyle. So when people meet you, do they expect you to speak in parables? I mean, you have this kind of guru aura, but when they meet you, you kind of represent an ideology. Do, do they uh, expect you to speak in parables? No, I don't think so, because most of them, I live a very quiet life, and the people I meet and the people I uh, surf with and associate with are already in that space. So okay. it's not necessary for me to actually engage with them because we're already engaged. The reason we are there is because we are connected. But for those that are not, I try to share some of my knowledge, and I do that through filmmaking. All my films have been, you know, explored different cultures on the planet and different um, aspects of being and have reflected that. And I think Morning of the Earth reflects that in a way, in its simplicity and its beauty. Um, so if, if I meet people on the street and they come up to me and say, oh, I love your film, I go, thank you very much. And so did I. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I don't sort of, I don't really engage too much unless, of course, they ask questions or they're interested outside of that, you know. Yeah. We're just, we're all the same. Um, can you believe that that project is 50 years old? Well, to me, it's only like yesterday. There's no That's separation. I, I don't feel like there's a separation. I mean, I have friends that I don't see for a, a number of years. And, and when I see them and reconnect with them, it's like we were never separated. And that's how yeah. I feel with Morning If I don't feel there's any separation there. I feel that you look at it because it, it's a timeless piece because it's representative of surfing and a certain lifestyle at that period of time. But the essence of it is still the same. There's no difference today than it was then. I feel no different today than I did then. I feel more connected now. And I think the film is actually more important now, more relevant considering there's twice the number of people on, on, uh, on, the, on the planet. And, you know, we're learning through resources, et cetera, at a great rate of night. So I think it's really important if you can engage and make people more sensitive, to that, it's, it's important. And that's one of the main reasons that I'm really um, happy to have met Justin because he picked up the banner and moved with it. And as a result of that, the film is going back out at a time when I think it's really important that we make a contribution to the well-being of this planet. And I think Morning of the Earth is only a small drop in the ocean, but it's a really powerful drop. And it's a beautiful drop. And all my films reflect that in a way. Morning of the Earth, from my vantage point, looked like it pioneered a certain style of surf film that would then be replicated for decades to come. Was there anything prior to it that you were actually referencing or working from? Not really. I mean, you know, I was interested in filmmaking uh, from an early stage, but there was nothing I could reference to that influenced me. I mean, I was, I started, I was interested actually early in the European films that were directed uh, from Italy, particularly with Michelangelo Antonioni and uh, Federico Fellini. I love their style of filmmaking. I was fascinated by that. Uh, so I was attracted to the European style of filmmaking early in the piece, and I saw most of those films. And in a way, I was influenced by that style. It had a certain um, elegance and, and um, beauty to it and the nobility. Uh, which I didn't see from coming from other countries. And um, so, you know, being from, you know, my DNA, it goes back into that area of the world, being Maltese, uh, I was attracted to it without, you know, being consciously 
you know, attached to that philosophy or anything, but it just appealed to me. I, I, I love the naturalness of it. So that was that was a, probably my major influence when I started to do Morning of the Earth. The way that the, the Morning of the Earth was edited, in a way, was cross-cut. You know, I was influenced by that in various films of, um, from Europe. Um, do you still follow filmmaking, uh, like narrative feature filmmaking, and do you have any favorite filmmakers nowadays? Um, not really. I mean, probably my favorite all-time film is Ashes and Snow by Gregory Corbett. Okay. Um, you wouldn't say that's mainstream film, but it's certainly at the top of the pyramid for me. I mean, when I saw that film, it was one of those films that you put the camera on the sideboard or you were incredibly inspired by it. And, you know, I thought that everything that I wanted to say or try and achieve was in that film. And it's worthwhile looking at if you get the opportunity or sharing that with listeners. Ashes and Snow by Gregory Corbett is certainly one of the most beautiful films you'll see. So that was probably a great influence on me in, in the later years. Um, but outside of that, I don't, I'm not that interested in filmmaking. You know, I, I, I follow it and I look at it, um, but the narrative um, could be anything for me. It just happens to be filmmaking. I mean, if I, you know, I like writing. I never, I, I was a lazy writer in a way. I never went to school. So, you know, I pick up the camera and, and, and told stories with my camera. But now I'm moving back into uh, writing and that's much more, and, you know, my house is full of books. There's 3,000 books in my house. And I'm, I'm just a collector of books and I could, you know, spend the rest of my life and then some reading. So, you know, that's a really great um, outlet for me creatively. It takes me on a journey, uh, on an inner journey when I can pick up a book um, and read it. You know, I mean, Gregory Corbett has a book of letters and that book is almost like um, Ben Ockrey's pages in Astonishing the Gods. You read one letter. He wrote 350 letters in a year. He went on a, a sabbatical and a year of silence. And in that year, he travelled and made this film. But he wrote a letter back to his loved one every day. And the book of letters is just absolutely stunning. Um, so that's worthwhile reading as well. So that takes, you know, that's where I'm at pretty much. Uh, um, where I'm, that's what I'm influenced by now, and that's where, where my head's at, really, rather than if, looking at the latest film that comes out from wherever. If Antonioni and Fellini were so influential early on, why do you think that you've lost your interest in film? Well, they died. <laughs> Nobody replaced them, their greatness? And it's like, you know, you look around for a replacement, but, you know, I mean... A good I'll, piece of art's a good piece of art. It's a very, it's hard to duplicate it or replace it. I'll make one suggestion, and I'll follow <laughs> up in, um, and I'll I'll follow up in emails so that um, you can actually watch the suggestion. But are you familiar with? He's also Italian filmmaker named Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, not with his work, but I've heard the name. So I've really liked his work for. Um, for years, but he just released a new film that is more autobiographical and he's from Naples and it kind of tells the story of Fellini coming to awesome. his town when he's 13 years old and how influential that was because he's casting a film. So a lot of 
just the local townspeople end up uh, being actors and extras in the film. Mm. And that became, of course, um, an impactful moment for Sorrentino, who now has become a great filmmaker in his own right. And mm. I don't think it's his best film, um, but it's called Hand of God, by the way. And I think it's on Netflix. I don't mm. think it's his greatest film, but the fact that it involves Fellini, I thought, um, was relevant to you. And it'd be a good introduction to his work anyway. Well, that's a nice um, double, Fellini and Hand of God. I can relate to that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you discover filmmaking and photography? Um, I think it discovered me, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, is at 14, um, I don't know where or how it fell into my hands, but I somehow purchased the camera. And soon after, a surfboard followed it. And then soon after that, I was employed in a photographic shop and the, and the owner of the shop wanted to paint and he, he, he didn't spend much time in the shop. But what he did is he allowed me to use the cameras and the lenses and he built a darkroom in the back of the shop. And then I'd go in there and work, but you know we didn't do much business because most of the time I was in the darkroom printing photographs of surfing but he was out painting. So that, that took me further into photography. And then I met Bob Evans, who was a traveling salesman, but also a filmmaker in his, it was his love. And he was connected to Bruce, um, to Bud Brown. So he and Brad, Bud had, because of their, you know, they're on various parts of the other side of the world, but they were connected through filmmaking and they'd met each other. and. Bob at that time had made two or three or four films and um, I met him in one of his journeys up into my area and he showed me a Bud Brown film and he was screening Bud's films in Australia and that was really influential. Uh, he also started the first surfing magazine, Australia Surfing World. Uh, and soon after that, he published my first photograph ever that I'd taken of surfing. And then I became a contributor. And before long, I was working with him. And then there, there was a stage where he, he couldn't go to Hawaii for family reasons, which is something he did every winter. And uh, he asked me to go. So in 24 hours, I had a crash course in 16 millimeter camera, 5,000 feet of film and two tickets to Hawaii. And that was the start of my career. Wow. Crazy. It was just serendipitous and meant to be. So, you know, it was, it just unfolded perfectly. Like you yeah. couldn't have asked for a better scenario. That's incredible. Um, so, what was the impetus for Tracks magazine? Well, the three, the three, the three started uh, David Elphick, um, John Witzig, and myself. And we we're all connected to publishing because I had at that time been working with Bob Evans. There's was only the two of us publishing Surfing World. And um, we were hands-on in every aspect of it. And John Witzig was um, publishing another, well, part of another magazine called Surf. And um, uh, David Elphick was involved as a sub-editor uh, on a music magazine, newspaper format. Um, and we all were connected to each other in some way. We lived close together. 
And then um, the magazines that John Whitsey and myself were publishing were printed over in Hong Kong. So it was a three-month delay from end of um, artwork and um, preparation to actually newsstand date. And it was too long. And David suggested, well, why don't we do a surfing newspaper? Because the turnaround then was um, in Australia was about seven to 10 days. So instead of waiting three months, we went down to a seven to 10 day turnaround. And then we got more into current affairs and lifestyle and politics and environmental issues. And it became really successful. From day one, it was like it went through the roof. And that was the start of tracks. We all had various reasons, but for me, the underlying reason was that, that was, it was around that time that I decided that I wanted to make my own surfing film. And uh, we all had various reasons. John wanted, you know, something to pay his way through university. And David wanted uh, a newspaper that he had more a political say in and, and ownership of. So we all formed a triangle of energies and had no money whatsoever and put the first issue together on nothing, no budget. And then the magazine went to, um, was going to, to print and we didn't have enough money to print the magazine. And at the last minute, a friend came in and said, there's your print bill paid for. And that was it. After the first issue, we paid him back, never looked back. Good for you. Where did the name come from? John Whitsey. He just, I think it actually came from, indirectly from George Greener in a way because John was connected to George at an early stage and he just saw that the, the tracks that on a wave that George was leaving were different to the tracks on a wave that other surfers were leaving. So we thought John was going, well, tracks, you know, is a line in passing and he thought tracks as a result of that connection that he had with with George and being a friend of his and observing his surfing and, you know, his life, he said, let's go with tracks. And that's how it originated. I like it. Um, can you tell me why you picked Greeno as a subject for your second film? Well, Gene, George had reestablished himself in Australia at that time. It was, you know, toing and froing from Santa Barbara to Australia. And he loved Australia. He loved the, 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 the quietness and the openness and the space and the lack of surfers. And um, he took to it really quickly. Bob Cooper, I think, was here at the same time um, or around the same time. So Bob Cooper was, was very influential in the early days too and also expat from America. And George, in coming to Australia and getting a taste of the points on the North Coast, went, this is for me. So he moved backwards and forwards for a few years and then eventually settled up on the north coast and bought 40 acres of land, which he still lives on, at the back of Lennox Head. And we became, you know, friendly uh, through J uh, John's connection with George. And David thought that we should make a, you know, a film about a personality as a support film for a rerun on Morning of the Earth after it had its initial run for a year. And he said, well, let's make a, you know, a 10-minute film on George. He's so eccentric, so bizarre, and it'd be great. And I went, you're crazy, and you can never make a 10-minute film on George. Um, so off we went. At that time, 
he was spending, you know, considerable time in, in, in California. And uh, we went over and started filming it. And 12 months later, I was still there helping George build the boat and at the same time making the film. And it turned into a feature because, you know, that's the way it went. And I was always interested in doing the film as a feature on George because I think he deserved it and he was a unique character in surfing. Um, so that's how it originated. Everyone else um, came back to Australia. I stayed and finished the film over there. The it's ingenious. I mean, you couldn't have mapped it out better because it's so hard to follow up a big first success. And, mm. and the second film is cut from the same cloth. Like there's certainly similarities between the two, but it mm. also is so divergent that it, mm. it exists in it on its own, you know, in its own realm too. It's really, really awesome. Well, there was nobody, there was no one filming inside the wave like that kept George. Right. And his rig was like 35 kilos or something, you know, so crazy. It was incredible. And he had already shot an amazing amount of footage and it cut echoes to Pink Floyd's track, which was, right. you know, a 30 or 40 minute track. So we had this amazing piece of art already made. And then we tailed, top and tailed it with his life and put the two together. And it became, you know, classic film. And uh, Pink Floyd recognised that. It was an amazing story with Pink Floyd, how they, was, how they you know, contributed the music. Because George had never approached them. He just cut the music to the track and went, well, that's the track I want to use. So Pink can Floyd you tell, the tell, band that, in the yeah, world. tell that story. I'm, I'm not familiar with how that all happened. Well, he, he cut the track Echoes. And, and I think at the time Pink Floyd had Dark Side of the Moon and had been on the charts for a year already and was the longest... Um, chart buster in, in music in England. And David decided he'd take George's cuts to London and show Pink Floyd. And like we had no money, like we had a minimum budget and we're scratching around to get enough money just to complete the film. And off he went to, to London and got in touch with the manager and said, look, we've got this unique film. And he said, oh, you know, go away. <laughs> You know, Pink Floyd, you know, you want to talk Pink Floyd? Forget it. He said, no, no, have a look at it. It's worth it. It's something really unique. And he said, okay. So David rented a theatre in London and he took the film in and the manager organised with the band to come down into the theatre on a Saturday with their wives or girlfriends and look at this piece of art. And they did. And they looked at it and when it was over, they went, well, let's have another look. And they looked at it and then they stood up and went, we're in. And they signed an agreement with us and there was no money exchange. It was a complete exchange of creative um, um, contributions to each. And what they asked is that, that we not cut the, the music in any way. We use the total track and we have that track synchronised with George's film in perpetuity and I think it cost $50. <laughs> Unbelievable. The biggest band in the world. <laughs> and did they ask for anything in return? No. All they wanted in return was that they could show the film at any time in concerts or whatever. And I remember like oh, 20 years later, I was in America um, with the Travel Channel. I had the series of documentaries that I was interested in making on islands of the world. 
as 12-part series, and I just finished 12-part series on festivals of the world, which followed a six-part series on festivals of the Far East, all cultural films. Anyhow, I was in there talking to the Travel Channel in Atlanta, and the manager came down in our meeting and said, look, I've got some tickets to a Pink Floyd concert. Do you want to come along? And I went, you're kidding, aren't you? Yes, I'll be there. So we got along to the, to the, the concert. There's like 50,000, 60,000 people in there. It's Pink Floyd. And like we've got choice seats. And we're watching it. And up comes George's film on the wide screen. Oh, my gosh. It was mind-blowing experience all these years later in Atlanta, in the middle of America. And there we are sitting down. And there's George's film playing behind their music that's incredible great great and they they just use that film here and there we never told us never asked us we just had this agreement where they could show it in perpetuity for whatever reason at any time and we could use their music with the film for whatever reason at any time it was a perfect marriage that's incredible <laughs> um, can you can you tell me what originally drew you to india Bali. Okay. Bali drew me to India. I mean, David Elphick was every year he'd take, you know, a month or six weeks and go up to Kathmandu and travel through the Himalayas. He'd take time out and he'd do that. And my focus at that point in time was the Pacific. I mean, you know, as a surfer and all I wanted to do was go to the North Shore or Hawaii or the tropical islands. So Asia never appealed to me. I never was interested in it in any way. And then when we went to Bali, we had the tickets and, and David said, well, let's go to Bali, you know, because of his influence, his, uh, his head uh, space was towards the east. So we hopped on a plane, went to Bali, and within like two days, or actually within, you know, 30 minutes out of the plane, I was taken by it. And within uh, two days, I was fascinated and then, you know, after two or three weeks, I could have lived there for the rest of my life. It was the most amazing country. If you wanted an introduction into Asia, of all the places, Bali is so perfect because it's Hindu in a Muslim country. It's got, and it has a, a Buddhist influence as well. And it's just so culturally rich and beautiful. And the people are just so magical that I, I fell in love with it and spent the next 20 years going there. And as a result of that, I then stepped off and made festivals of the Far East, which took me into Ladakh, the Himalayas, the Kumbh Mela Festival down at Hardvar, and of all places, Tibet. And, you know, the second most favourite film, if not my most favourite film in my complete um, catalogue, is the, um, the journey to the Wisak Valley in Tibet, which is, was a two-week journey across Tibet into a sacred valley where the festival is held there um, every May. And we were the first filmmakers to, to capture that. And that was just a magical journey. And I've, I've, when I look back on it, I realised that everything that happened prior to that was to set me up for that moment. That is without a doubt, you know, an important film, I think. Um, well... The reason why I ask that question is just because it doesn't involve surfing. You know, it's an unlikely trajectory for somebody who started out where you started. So what was the subject that drew you to it and why is it one of the most important films? Well, what, what connected me to that 
was the spiritual aspect of the Balinese. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like that coming from Western country, Christian upbringing, Catholic, yeah. Malta, you know, more churches, poor square mile than any other country on the planet. My heritage was like, you know, deep-seated Catholicism and um, Christianity. And I had a not a pleasant experience when I was young at school, as a lot of people do, not, not personally. I mean, it affected me personally, but it was a, one of brutality that I witnessed in the classroom. And that just, like, totally freaked me out. I mean, you know, I had a really loving, compassionate family upbringing in the commune, in a way, in, in the city area. And we lived with relatives and, you know, all our families together. We were poor, but we shared, you know, a great connection and a great love. So I had a really beautiful upbringing. And then at the age of about 13, I witnessed this brutality. And at that time, I was interested in being a priest. I wanted to go in and study. Wow. Right? But that just threw me right off the track. And I lost all interest in, in religion. When I stepped into uh, Bali, I witnessed a different form of religion. But it wasn't religion. It was something much deeper than that. And when I got further into it and then looked into the Buddhist aspect and the Hindu aspects, it's just something that resonated with me and it restored my faith and confidence because it was to deal with all of life. It just wasn't an aspect of it. And there was a beauty and a harmlessness and a kindness to it that attracted me. So I, I delved into it deeper and deeper. And that was the reason and the, re, the end result of that was that I went to India and made, because of the fascination with their spiritual upbringing and culture, and made films about it. Every film I made was a cultural festival and event. It was incredible. Yeah. And those films, I think it's timeless now. In retrospect, when you look at what's happened up there with those countries, some of those countries have been totally annihilated through for various reasons. Yeah. Realwatersports.com is our retail partner and our sponsor of today's show. Uh, they're an incredible retailer for surfboards. They're based out of North Carolina, but they can ship you boards anywhere in the world for one flat fee. It's guaranteed to show up at your door blemish-free, but they're also in the middle of a mid-winter clearance sale right now. So in addition to discounts on surfboards, there's discounts on board bags, backpacks, traction, leashes, everything, all sorts of deals. Go check them out, realwatersports.com, a tremendous resource throughout the year. But if you've heard us talk about them before and you sat on the fence, Now's the time to go find a deep, deep deal. All right, realwatersports.com. Enjoy. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, 
all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I think that Morning of the Earth is the only surfboard brand that is based on a film. How did that, <laughs> how did that develop? Uh, I've known Simon for a while, and I, you know, as a board builder, I bet he lived some distance from me, and we never kind of engaged or surfed too much together. And then I got a call out of the blue, and he loved Morning of the Earth, obviously, and loved the film. And he was in early stages of surfboard making personally but he'd had experience with other surfboard manufacturers up in that area he was a very good craftsman um and at that point a family man he had a very young family and they were the children were going to the steiner school steiner schools in australia rudolph steiner schools and that appealed to me and then he just said well can i make a few morning of the earth boards and all the ingredients were there. Every box was ticked. Family man, beautiful designer, sensitive, um, love surfing, uh, love the film. I just said, go for it, you know, for sure. And that's how it developed and expanded, you know, from, from that point. Um, how do you feel about the way that that brand has developed? Well, I think everyone's you know, has the, the lid on it. I mean, I, I think all of us are not really interested in establishing, you know, a corporation or making it, you know, any more than it is. And I think that the big thing with doing something like that where it becomes so popular and successful in a way, um, it's like magnetic uh, in the aspect that you can take it down certain paths. I mean, Quicksilver board shorts, for example, were originally cut in a kitchen you know, in Victoria, yeah, it became a billion dollar company. And that's what happens naturally with growth and something that's of interest or, you know, attractive. And Morning of the Earth had that potential, but none, no, we didn't want that. We, you know, tracks wasn't yeah. about success on that level. It was about lifestyle and, and treading lightly on the planet and being positive with aspects of life on all levels, whether they're with your friends and surfers or with it's the environment or whatever. So, so all of us kind of had that ethos and, and, it's, and we still have it. So Simon is, is at this point with Torrin Martin surfing the boards and being the surfer that he is and so graceful and beautiful that he's attracted a lot more attention to that lifestyle, that surfing. And Simon now is, you know, getting phone calls and yeah. he... He doesn't, he's at the point in his life where he wants to balance his life out so he can spend time surfing with his family and not become, you know, a surfboard manufacturer on that level. 
So yeah. he's trying to hold it back and he's, con you know, he wants to share his experience, knowledge and beauty, but he doesn't want to have a corporate identity. Right. It's, there's a perfect synergy there. Absolutely. Um, and the boards that he's building, I mean, maybe they're based on the film to a certain degree. They incorporate a lot of, I don't know, retro elements, but they also incorporate a lot of modern elements that allow Torin to surf in a way that people couldn't surf back in the seventies, you know, or, or prior. So it's like a perfect synergy that continues to move the ball forward as well. Well, I think so. I think it's, I think there's a lot of young people that respond to the lifestyle of what Morning of the Earth represents. And it has nothing to do with retro or time. It just, it's, it's something deeper. I think it's a natural, beautiful connection that the film was able to uh, capture. And I think the, the, the surfers like Torren, for example, and Dave Rusevich and, and so many others have, have responded to that. You know, they like that beauty and simplicity of just riding waves without getting involved in the merchandising or the competitive side of it. It's just not their life. So, and, and I think that uh, uh, Torren has been, he has this sort of not a contemporary look at life right now, but a realistic look at life right now. And it's totally gone off the wheels, right? Yeah. Um, and he's, he's reflected back onto the film and incorporating that as an aspect of his dream and lifestyle along with his contemporary look at the world today. So he's got the best of both worlds, as you mentioned, in a synergetic way. And uh, I think it works uh, perfectly. And the same with Justin. Justin's, you know, the same age, the same vintage, the same mindset, the same heart, the same love of the ocean. And if it wasn't, um, if he didn't have that and jump and you move forward with the film, it wouldn't be where it is now. I mean, so they want that style to, to, to not only embrace that style personally, but they want to reflect that to their audiences and others around them because it's a more sustainable lifestyle, more realistic in today's world. I agree. And, you know, I think that's really important. That's why so we're you're, really the film. You're, you're referring to Justin Mish, who yes. is the producer yes. uh, involved in the remastering of Morning of the Earth. Yes. How did, did he approach you with the idea or how did the remastering come about? He came to Australia about three years ago with the film um, spoons. Well, yep. it wasn't finished. He was actually um, in Australia to do some filming. He particularly wanted to film and do an interview with George Greener because the spoons mm -hmm. was all centred around that, you know, like Randall Jader and the development of the spoons in the Santa Barbara area. And they were making, he and Wyatt, his partner at the time, were making this film about it. So they came to Australia and they linked up with me because they thought I would be a good connection with George. So when they came here, we, we hooked up pretty early and uh, went to a you know, little place where I go surfing. And it just so happened that it was like a perfect little point break wave about shoulder high. And it's never very crowded because there's a beach, you know, like five minutes down the road, it's got such much better waves and it's a magnet. 
everyone goes there. They very rarely go around and surf this little point. And we, we met there and we surfed there for three hours and we were the only three people in the water. And that was our meeting. And then we went back. They stayed there for a couple of days and went back. And he, uh, Justin said to me um, that he was restoring, um, you know, eight millimetre footage from way back for spoons. They'd set up the, with the um, apps available and so forth and they were in kind of a, a, a post-production uh, mode, so to speak. And he said, you ever thought about restoring the original footage that you shot, camera takes, uh, today, now? And I went, well, yes, I've just been waiting for you to come along and ask me. <laughs> <laughs> he just fell off the chair and that was it. I mean, we formed a friendship and a relationship and six months later we became partners and uh, he's like, he's a godsend. A blessing in my yeah. life because I, I wondered, you know, at this point in time, you know, if how we could, you know, move more in the earth and keep it alive and active in the world. And I, you know, I was not interested in doing that. You know, I'd already sort of gone down the path with it. And Justin, who loved the film, watched it religiously, did studied film in the University of Santa Barbara, uh, just took it under his wing. But the incredible thing about that is about a year earlier, I get a letter from Justin and I'd never heard from him, never spoke to him. And the letter says, oh, I love your film so much. I've kind of, you know, and this was his early days of surfing. He hadn't been surfing for 10 years, but he, you know, he just was fixated with it, loved the film, loved photography and movies and was really taken up with surfing. And he said, I was just wondering, you know, can you send me or can I buy a film? So I just sent him over a copy. He said, well, don't worry about sending me any money. It's for you. Thank you very much. Wow. And then a year later, we became partners. Wow. Um, when did the lost footage find its way back to you? Well, you know, I knew it was there. We didn't have a large budget, so we didn't shoot much film. I think we were about 10 to 1 in ratio, which is like 10 hours to one hour. And that okay. was the top end of the film. So Morning of Earth was 73 minutes. So we used 73 minutes of whatever was shot. And I'm sure there was another six or eight hours of raw footage floating around. But somehow in our kind of, you know, deranged state and, you know, young, you know, mixed up and confused but ambitious direction, we didn't pay much attention to the outtakes we cut the original film and the outtakes were just put in the corner and that's yeah. it. Oh, they're the outtake. But today, of course, like all that work is so valuable. Um, uh, and that just disappeared. It's strange because I've still got the outtakes for Crystal Voyager, but the ones for Morning of the Earth disappeared. So the only footage we had was the footage that went into the film. And I knew it existed and I tried to track it down. I had kind of a bit of a line on it, but I... I was never able to locate it. So I just gave up and said, oh, well, you know, that's it. And then one day I come home from a surf and on my message bag, there's a, 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 a note that says, um, uh, my name's Adam Eden. You may not know me. My father was Jack Eden, who was a great early photographer surfing in Australia. He said, I've got something here may be of interest to you. Why don't you call me back? So I went, I don't know what Adam's about. So I called him back. He said, oh, my father died last year and uh, I've been going through his estate and his, um, all his archival material. 
and I came across all these cans of film. And he said, amongst the cans of film, there were three cans with Morning of the Earth on the outside of them. And I went, no way. I just fell off the seat. No way. And I phoned him back. And he, he said, yeah, we've got three cans here and they're in good condition. And my father's obviously picked them up from somewhere and they're yours and I'm phoning you and what would you like me to do with them? I went, thank you so much, Adam. And we sent them over to Justin and Justin transferred them to 4K and that's where the uh, remote outtakes is now, 24, 20, uh, 34 minute film of it. Yeah, so that happened after you had already met Justin and conceived of the 50th year remastering. It came actually when Justin was just about finished mastering the film. The last wow. like, six months, it just came out of the blue, fell out of the sky. Crazy timing. <laughs> <laughs> and Justin and I were both like, a, you know, serendipity, the invisible hand at work again. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. The invisible hand keeps coming up, you know. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Um, are you 76 years old? Five. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. 70 something. <laughs> I like uh, the idea of seven. <laughs> Seven's <okay>. very appealing. <laughs> well, um, I want to know about diet and exercise. And oh. obviously, obviously, uh-huh. you're still surfing. Well, let's start oh, with what what's your relationship like with surfing right now? Oh, you know, if there's an offshore wind, I'm out the door. Surfing every you know? day? Well, you know, if there's surf, you know, I live 10 minutes from the ocean and I've got my, my van has got my go-to boards in it and they're never out of it. The wetsuit, leg ropes, they're never out of it unless I'm in the water. So, you know, I'm ready to go every day. I mean, you know, I'm up the coast now, you know, four hours from where I live. It surfs flat, but I've got my boards and ready. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so, so I surf pretty, pretty regularly. What have you done for diet and exercise that allows you to surf that frequently uh, into your 70s? Um, I've been a vegetarian for over 40 years. 40? I'm not vegan, um, but I don't eat any animals at all. You know, nothing, okay. fish or chickens or anything. Anything with eyes in it. <laughs> um, I'm kind of just, uh, it's just something that happened, you know, um, along the way. It wasn't like, oh, I wake up one morning, I'm going to be a vegetarian. Um, I met somebody, uh, a girlfriend, really early in the piece that was into uh, her spiritual development and various other alternative ways of living. And she introduced me to the country, introduced me to good food. And I gradually moved more and more into that. And now I, you know, I live a, you know, I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs. I'm in pretty good shape. Um, and I do yoga, you know, not regularly, but um, I've had periods of great yoga. And for 10 years, I did fasting. Every uh, February, I'd do a great fast to clean any toxins out. Not that I was riddled with toxins, but I believe that, you know, don't wait till you're sick to see a doctor. So I just worked on causes, right, causation. Uh, I, I, the thing that I recognised early in my life is that I wanted to live my entire life so that when I got to the back end of that life, I could still paint a picture. I didn't want to be crippled in any way, you know, uh, physically, mentally or emotionally. I want to be able to paint that picture right up to the time I wasn't here. And I think that's something that I recognised and I wasn't obsessive about it. I just realised I want to be able to create, you know. Creativity was really an important aspect of my life. 
and I want to be able to continue that right up to the time I wasn't here. So I'm in pretty good shape as a result of that right now. That's amazing. For it some is. people, for some people who cut out uh, those things from their diet, it feels like a struggle and they're constantly kind of battling and trying to win the battle. It seems like there's no struggle for you. Well, no, there was never really a struggle. You know, it was almost like, I don't know if it's destiny or whatever it is. It's almost like, you know, I recognized my purpose early in life without saying, oh, well, this is what I'm going to do. But I think that purpose embraces everything. It's not just your creative purpose, it's your life. And then you start to, it's like magnetic in a way. It brings things to you rather than you going out searching for them. And it's, it's, it's much more subtle, but I found that it works perfectly. And that's how I am in my life. I don't actually set goals too much, particularly now from day to day. I don't have plans, but I have dreams. And, you know, there's things that I'd like to achieve creatively, but I've kind of surrendered all that. And I think that was there from the start. So I've been able to go through my life without being attached to too many things. The I think I recognised before I got into Buddhism the impermanence of everything, how things just come and go like the breath we breathe. You know, we breathe it in and three minutes later it's gone and, and we don't even realise that we're breathing anymore. But that's so without three minutes of air inside your body, you're dead. So it's kind of like you become conscious of things in life. And I think I was able to recognise that early in a, in a very simplistic way and it's, it's kept me going all these years. Um, does your body in your mid-70s allow you to surf the way that you want to surf? Oh, yeah. I, 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 didn't, I haven't fasted for the last three years. I, I go on a great fast usually um, at a certain time of the year, and I'm not fixed on a time frame on it. I'll do it maybe for a week or two days or five days, and the longest I ever uh, uh, went uh, on the fast was uh, four weeks. Right, with, wow. where I just had grapes and water. And, but what I found during the fast, after about seven days, I'd be out in the water paddling like for hours, three or four hours, and people would be going, I'm going in, I'm hungry, I'm going to get some food, and I'd be still paddling. And that's how it is. I think I'm, I've kind of, I think that it's a state of mind, but it's also an aspect of your life. It's part of your life. So the diet is like a proportion and part of my life that was established early and it's been a continuation of that plus various other things that have got me to a point where it's holistic now. It's not just part of everything working in synchronicity. And I think that's really a great place to be. I don't struggle with things. I let things go really quick. Good. And I think that's important for everybody because once you – can get to that point of realisation and self-realisation, that's when the door opens for all kinds of possibilities and opportunities, uh, especially if you're halfway interested in creating something. You know, you mm. want to achieve something on a creative level, which is we all are already perfectly created. But, I mean, if you want to actually express that in a, in a concrete form, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Um... I know you talked about working on a book project, but do you have any ambitions to make another film? Uh, I'm toying with it, but um, I don't know if I'd go out and actually make a film 
uh, from start to finish incorporating all the aspects of it like I did with Morning of Earth. I mean, I was hands-on with everything. I think now there's so many wonderful filmmakers out there that I think it's possible to make a film incorporating some of that material in a way, if you were to sort of guide it and direct it, that would be worthwhile pursuing. And it also, it's not, it's not time consuming because most of that work has been done. I mean, look, for example, at David Rusevich. Nathan Oldfield has been filming David for the last 10 years. He's made some wonderful films, but nine-tenths of the film is sitting on the shelf. Right, And that applies yeah. to all those photographers. There's so many wonderful photographers. You only use a proportion of your film. And I think it would be wonderful to be able to, you know, think about doing a film, incorporating, you know, maybe six or seven really great photographers, putting an idea together, which I already have, and then top and tailing it. And you've got something really important. You get the bed, the narrative, the music narrative, and it would be a music narrative. And you take them into another journey and another dimension. And I think that's a possibility. I have something in, in mind, like the second coming, which I would, you know, I could do under those parameters. But I wouldn't go out now personally from, from stage one and do a complete film. I think just I'm doing other things creatively that I want to keep um, my finger to. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but I'll ask you, uh, I'll phrase the question differently and let you expand on it. Um, does morning of the earth's relevance in 2022 solely have to do with its historical importance or does it have new value and meaning in this era? Well, I think we all have, I think if you look at it, from an audience point of view, you've got layers and levels because there are people who've grown up with it that recognise it. So it represents a certain aspect to them. But there are more people in the world, young people in the world, that have no idea of certain. Like, for example, I would love to show that film in its present restored form in Russia, where people don't get to see the ocean. So they can have this incredible experience of seeing something different, particularly young people, but at the same time they've got a narrative in the soundtrack that reflects what's important today as it was then. The narrative, I think, is more important today. And the reason that I'm, you know, excited about seeing the film go out now with Justin at the wheel is because it's, it's more about the earth it's, it's not about personalities. It's not about surfers individually. It's about the collective consciousness in surfing. And I think that's reflected, was it reflected in Morning of the Earth early? And I think to a certain degree, that's why people responded to it because underneath it tapped something that was really, you know, important to them inside themselves and they related to it. It was in, an inner experience rather than an exterior experience. And I think... That's important today with the film. And if we can get that out with that message where we're reminding people that the planet is a fragile system, it is our home and we are the custodians of it. Uh, we have to think more sustainably and work towards that. And there's a huge number of people who think the same way. And Morning View is just a drop, but I think it's, 
that's one of the reasons I'm excited about seeing it go out now because I think we can show it to places around the world where people will have a direct experience of it that have never seen surfing, never seen the ocean, and it'll get to them because it's something different. You know? um, and that excites me. And it'll go out and remind people inside and outside of surfing that, you know, it is about the planet and you better take care of it. <laughs> I love it. Mm. I love it. That's a great sentiment. Um, final question for everybody interviewed is what was the last surfboard that you rode and whose boards are you riding? <laughs> well, I rode um, Mitchell Ray's Outer Island surfboards for a number of years. Um, and I still have some that are just absolute pieces of art. Um, um, they're called Buddha sticks, actually. And they're okay. really beautifully designed surfboards. I think Mitchell happens to be one of the best designers in the world. He's one of the few designers that worked from, from start to finish. Plus, also, he was influenced by the flexed um, tails and performance of design from George in those early days. So he's incorporated flex in his boards, not all of them, but for those that want them, he incorporates them. So I have a collection of his boards and I've been riding them for 10 years or so. And he lives nearby and we have a wonderful connection. He's a great friend and I love his surfboards. So when I went to Bali a few years ago, I took nothing but Outer Island boards. They originated there. They're made for Bali. They're perfect for those waves for me. But I've moved um, into, um, with Simon, I've started writing a few of Simon's boards. So I, I cross over between the two, but predominantly my go-to board is a, I ride boards uh, that basically were influenced by Torren and, and the combination of Torren and um, Simon's ability creatively and their knowledge. Um, and I ride um, six boards from 610 to 710. So I'm actually, I've got, you know, a number of small boards, but they, they're my three go-to boards, 610, 74 and 710. And I just find that around this area, they're perfect. They're perfect point break. They're not sort of beach break boards so much as they're point breaks, and that's what I prefer to surf. But if I was going to Bali, I'd probably throw in an outer island. <laughs> but that's not like that in the near future. Um, if so, then, you know, I'd probably say one of each. Are the boards from Simon twin fins, channel bottoms? Yeah, they're all twin fin channels. Yeah, beautiful. I have one 610 from him that I got in 2018, and uh, I still ride it all the time. I rode it exclusively for at least a year, and the thing is bulletproof. It still holds up like it's brand new. What I like about Simon's boards is that they're intuitive. You know, I find that when I surf those boards... It's not really me. It's the boy that takes me. You know, I, it just finds its way to the sweet spot all the time effortlessly. And when mm -hmm. I watch Torin surf, it's kind of, he's like that in a way. I mean, he stands in the middle of the board. Yeah. He's so graceful. And it's like he lets the board take him. I mean, he has amazing ability and control. But when you look at him surfing those boards, it's like he's in the middle and he steps forward and he steps back. But there's something about them. He just said they always just seem to find the sweet spot. And that's how I find when I'm surfing them. I just find it's effortless to surf those boards because they're always in the sweet spot. Yeah, I agree. And what you're saying about Torin 
is true when he's surfing big, sketchy barreling waves on a shallow reef or long, graceful point breaks? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you watch like uh, any of the films that Ashka's made or some of the early films where it's in um, Jay Bay where you've got these incredible long walls, I mean, that's when you really see the boards come into their own. Yeah. I mean, he rides the little, the little twin fins, you know, on beach breaks. But when you see most of the surfing that you see of Torrent is point break surf with long walls that are really barreling, right? Yeah. And then you get to see just how the board is. Sometimes I've watched him surf in, on those, um, in those sequences, but I've just watched the board. Like I've watched him surf, but I just look at how, where the board goes and how board sits on the high line and how it moves on the face of the wave. It's so beautiful, you know, and you, you just kind of, it's like, it's like it was better to be invisible at the time, but he didn't realise it until he got on his dumb and dad board. <laughs> we open there and we end there. Uh, <laughs> Thank well, you. So well much. done. Um, (laughs) my final question for you is actually your name albie you spell it with an e at the end but everywhere even on the encyclopedia of surfing they all write it with a y yeah i actually i don't know how that where that originated from but it's like i don't know the e the albie sounds like when I look at it on a deeper level, Albie is almost like all B. In other words, all of us are the same, all B. And then if you look at the Y, Albie, it's like Y. Yeah. (laughs) So I kind of lean towards the all B because I think we're all being together on this planet is really important and that's what the film's about. So... For me, that's, you know, it was just a natural. I like it. We'll stick with the B, B-E <laughs> spelling. Yeah. Thank awesome. you so much, David. Be, be here now. That's the nice thing about it with our life, you know, just, you know, grateful and respectful for the opportunity and the moments that are presented to us. So I think it's a great gift and I'm really, really thankful, thankful that we had the opportunity to talk and share that. Thank you. And congratulations on the 50 year anniversary too. That is a huge feat. Thank you very much. Gladly. All right. I'll talk to you soon. I hope so. Lots of love. Okay. Okay. You too. Bye. Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. Nothing but blue skies from now on I never saw the sun shining so bright Never saw things going so right Noticing the days hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly by The great Albie Falzon, ladies and gentlemen. Everything that Albie and I discussed in today's show is available, of course, on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I've linked to morningoftheearth.com, to the coffee table book, the remastered film, the soundtrack, um, a trailer of the remastered version of the film as well. You can watch on our website. So go check all of that out right now. If you are in Australia, 
Um, they are doing screenings, I think, in the coming weeks. So hopefully you can find one near you on morningoftheearth.com as well. And of course, I've also linked to the Morning of the Earth surfboards built by Simon Jones, which of course I'm a huge fan of. Uh, we've posted some of Torrens surfing on the website as well. And while you're there, if you haven't already, we'd love if you consider becoming a contributor, a supporter, a subscriber of our work. It's $5 a month, and it is the foundation of our business. Obviously, we have advertisers as well, and that is awesome. But the $5 monthly subscriptions are the bedrock of the business. It allows us to archive the work. It allows us predictable, recurring revenue to run the business on. So, so thank you for considering that. We have some perks that are explained on the website. And thank you to all of you who just share this show with friends. That's really the way that we've grown the show since day one. Obviously, we don't really advertise, and so word of mouth is key. If you like this show, particularly this episode, I think would resonate with a lot of people who don't even surf. So go ahead and um, pass this one along if you don't mind. And lastly, thank you to Justin Mish for connecting me with Albie Falzon. It was a true pleasure to have the honor to speak with him. All right, Scott Bass and I dropped an episode of Spit on Monday at the beginning of this week covering the uh, sunset event. Chaz Smith and I will be getting together tomorrow on The Grit, but last week we actually had Jamie Brissick on, so go and check that out if you haven't already. And then I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. All right, thanks so much for listening. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I'm reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. Nothing but blue skies from now And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.